The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. We're about a month away exactly to minor league opening day, and it got me thinking about the prospect hype cycle and guys that we might need to revisit and reterrogate their status. And I wanted to have a little bit of fun, so what I did was create a post-hype starting nine. It'll be nine prospects, one at each position, and we're going to look at how they got there and whether we're still interested in investing in them for dynasty purposes. Before I run down these names, let's talk about what post-hype kind of looks like. What does it mean when we're saying that a prospect is post-hype? Here's a quick summary, in my opinion, of how the typical prospect hype cycle goes. So normally you have stage one, prospect X puts up some incredible stats or has some tremendous tape or video available if they are prep or international signee, and it's normally in their draft eligible year. So it kind of gets people salivating. That's the introduction stage. Stage two, Prospect X gets drafted and begins to draw some of those incredible comps that we tend to see. Some hyperbole starts to pop up. They're the next so-and-so. They're this player, but with more power and more speed. They're a combination of X and Y. Uh, this is that build-up stage. So this is when we start really, in the fantasy community, really starting to hype a guy up, waiting for their debut, uh, debut waiting for that thing to all kind of click together. And then you have stage three. And that's Prospect X gets promoted uh, to the upper minors. This creates that anticipation stage. So fans start to speculate on when the major league club is going to call them up, where the prospect is going to bat in the lineup, so on and so forth. It, it's This is where we are with Julio Rodriguez right now. This is where we are with Adley Rushman, with Torkelson. It's just a matter of let's get to it. Let's, let's make it happen and get them into the major leagues. Then things can kind of go two different ways. So either the prospect gets promoted from the minors and it's like a butterfly from its cocoon. Everything kind of goes pretty much according to plan as much as it can or kind of stumble out the gate. Maybe there's an injury or two. Maybe they simply have a couple of down seasons at that double A, triple A level or even a poor, you know, 50, 100 at bats at their major league level. If it's a pitcher. Maybe the first 20 or so innings pitched at the major league level aren't what we're really looking for. Suddenly that heat starts to cool down on the prospect. The comps become a lot more grounded and that question starts to shift from when, that anticipation, to if or can they. You know, if they put such and such together or can they stay healthy? Can they actually hit at the major league level? Can they develop a third pitch or if they uh, develop a better fastball shape, then maybe we can start to see a better outcome. And that's that stage, that post-type stage that we're focusing on today. Again, it's nine prospects, one at each position. We'll look at how they got there and whether you should have an interest in them moving forward. A really good companion piece to this episode is up on the site right now, and that's written by Steve Giswele called Post-Hype Sleepers. Uh, we'll stick that in the show notes as well for you to have access to. Uh, he did a great job of outlining his own list of major leaguers that are 
on that post-hype stage, and he's suggesting that you target them in your dynasty leagues. All right, let's take a quick break and come back with... Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show list all right and we're back talking about post-hype prospects so let's start behind the plate and as you should know by now we're seeing a a great number of young catchers rising in organizational and overall rankings for fantasy potential changes to the game have caused some players to rise in estimation because things like framing and even just the general defense of a catcher may start to shift Uh, if we see automatic strike zones what does that do for uh, catcher value and if a guy doesn't have good framing skills that may not impact him as much now as it used to in the past uh, but while that occurs there are other catchers with whom the community seems to have fallen out of love and one such name is our first on the list is our catcher for our lineup and that is from the Tampa Bay Rays Francisco Mejia Francisco Mejia 26 years old currently probably best known for his 50 game hit streak Back in 2016 at Class A Lynchburg, that's where he kind of really started to make his name in that hype cycle that I was talking about. And just to get an idea of ratings, I I have these for all of our prospects. He was rated number 17 by France. He was rated number 17 by Fangraphs, number 20 by Baseball America, and as high as number three in Baseball Prospectus's midseason ranking. And that's all in the year 2018. So highly, highly a ranked and rated prospect. There were already existing questions about his game power and his defense, not his arm, uh, but more so the receiving aspect. But it seemed like that hit tool that helped him to that 50-game hit streak, that hit tool should carry him up through the minors into the major leagues. He debuts in 2017. He gets traded in 2018 from Cleveland to San Diego. In 76 combined plate appearances, he puts up a 54 WRC plus at the major league level. Not ideal, but conventional wisdom is that he just needs some consistent playing time to find his footing. 2019 comes, it starts to take a turn. 265, 316, 438 is his slash, so much better. Eight home runs, that's good for a 97 WRC plus, and that's in 244 plate appearances. So it starts to look like there's something for him to stick with. And then 2020 hits. And he ends up splitting time in San Diego with both of the Austins. That's Austin Hedges and Austin Nola. Only plays in 17 games in the shortened season. Puts up a .077 batting average. And only one home run. Then he gets shipped from San Diego to Tampa in 2021. Again, looks a little bit closer to 2019. Slash line is 260, 306, 414. Six home runs. But again, he's kind of stuck in a backup catcher position behind Mike Zanino. So going into 2022, where where does this land him for our purposes? Where do we stand? Uh, the projections think that he's kind of closer to 2021 as a backup catcher. So that's waiver wire material to me. Uh, I, I'm not going out of my way to try to find somebody that is going to give you you know six, maybe ten best case scenario home runs and is firmly in that backup catcher position on their team's roster. If you're in a two-catcher league, maybe you take a shot on him if he's available, uh, just to have some depth in case one of your main catchers gets injured. Uh, If you have a ton of IR spots, again, for injury, you're always looking for extra warm bodies. Then he may be somebody that you're interested in. Or if you have some other super deep league type of setup, then certainly he might be worth your time. But in a standard 
you know, 12 to 16 team dynasty one catcher league, I'm not checking for Francisco Mejia. I think he just never got groomed to be the the next guy up on any of the teams that he was on. Uh, the way you would kind of expect for uh, somebody of his potential and definitely in that position as a catcher. And I think he may have just kind of peaked a little bit too early. Uh, he was 18, 19 year old having that 50 game hit streak. And I wonder now in today's game, even though it's just a few years, I wonder now if he has that sort of history and rises to prominence, if Cleveland immediately starts looking at or whatever team he's on, immediately starts looking at shifting him off position just to make sure that that bat stays relevant and consistently develops. So maybe with his arm strength, they say, let's move him to third, move him to the outfield, move him to left, just to make sure that he doesn't have to take on all the stress and all the discipline that comes with being a catcher. Uh, Defensively, learning your pitching staff, learning how to call a game, along with trying to develop as a hitter. Maybe they take that stress off of him. I don't know. The world will never know. He definitely, in in a lot of ways, probably would have benefited from um, getting the Jose Ramirez uh, mentorship. That would have been great for him. I think there's a lot of similarities in their batted ball profile, if you look at and how they get hits. I think he definitely would have benefited from spending some time around Jose Ramirez. Just didn't happen. Uh, So again, I'm not checking for Francisco Mejia this year or really moving forward. There would have to be some sort of major injury or deal involving Zanino to move him out of the way. Uh, so Mejia can become the primary catcher. And even then, I need to see it before I'm putting up fab dollars for Mejia. Moving on, we're going to go to first base. And that's Evan White from the Seattle Mariners. Uh, another sort of uh, famous or infamous, depending on where you stand, case here. Uh, Evan is 23 years old now. He was drafted by Seattle 17th overall from University of Kentucky back in 2017. His rankings, his highest rankings, number 54 by Baseball America, number 56 by MLB Pipeline, and number 62 by Baseball Prospectus. So again, he was not super duper high, but somebody that was still uh, ranked pretty well and was seen as a pretty good talent. 2018 at high A was a success for him. He put up a WRC plus of 127, had 11 home runs. 2019, that was his standout year. He put up 18 home runs and 400 plate appearances. That's when he signs that, again, famous or infamous six-year, $24 million contract with Seattle before he ever played any inning, any at-bat at the major league level. That was also an all-star year for Evan in the minor league level. So it looks like he's going to be part of this rebuild that was going on uh, in Seattle, right? And he was going to be a major factor in it. 2020 happens. He gets to the major league level, hits eight home runs, logs 202 plate appearances. He does show a serious strikeout problem. K rate was at 41.6%. But still, you're thinking, okay, the Mariners are rebuilding. Here's one of their main pieces. They're giving him time to grow. This is kind of all going uh, according to plan. Last season, he gets 30 games in, then has a hip injury, and that ends up ending his season as he has surgery on that hip. And you start to look at what Seattle has done. Suddenly, I don't know if there's space for Evan White, right? They kind of supercharge their rebuild. And now you definitely have to look at them as contenders out in the AOS. Maybe not for the pennant, but definitely for the division at least, they're way further along than where they probably thought back in 2019. So he clearly showed legitimate major league power, but the question remains whether he'll be able to make contact consistently considering that K rate that he showed in 2020. And for me, because the Mariners have gotten much better from an on-field talent perspective in that short amount of time, and he's coming off of that surgery, I don't know if he has an easy pathway back into everyday playing time. Right now, if you look on roster resource, it looks like they have Ty France uh, slotted as the everyday first baseman. They made the trade in the offseason to get Adam Frazier at second, and they still have Dylan Moore, who you know I know people are mixed on, but that's still a guy that is floating around as kind of your super utility person. So where does Evan Wake kind of slide in? Is he an everyday DH guy? Um, I'm sure they want to use that DH spot for um, Hanniger to give him some time off as well from the outfield. I really want to see Evan White healthy, first and foremost. And he might be somebody that benefits from a trade 
going to another team. Or again, there has to be one or two injuries in that infield to create a pathway for him to create actual value by getting some everyday at-bats. If I already roster Evan White, I say, okay, I'll stash him for another season just to see how things shake out. But I'm not seeking him out if he's not on my roster. Uh, He's not a guy that I, again, in that 12 to 16 team setup, everything is kind of standard rules. I'm not going out of my way to make uh, any sort of deal or spend any sort of fab dollars on Evan White. So from first base, now we move to second base. Here's a guy that is, uh, I think, showing up on a lot of sleepers. Where does he stand? Is this the year type of list in the offseason? And that's second baseman or middle infielder for the Los Angeles Dodgers, Gavin Lux. So Lux, 24 years old now, he was a prep bat, was drafted number 20 overall. He graduated from Fangraph's prospect list with a 70 future value grade. That's how big a lot of the industry was on Gavin Lux going into his major league debut. He was ranked number two overall by MLB Pipeline in 2020, number three overall by Baseball Perspectives, number four overall by Baseball America. So again, super high grades coming from some very credible and trusted sources. He had just lit up the minors in 2019. It was a combined year between levels of 26 home runs, a 1.028 OPS, so this is a guy that was definitely on fire, and this was right around the time that I was actually getting into Dynasty Baseball, and he was the name that was on everybody's lips. It was just, we're just waiting for him to hit. And everybody was seeing, uh, again, this was before the Dodgers won the World Series, everybody saw him as he's going to be a major factor of helping them get over the pump to get the World Series, and also helping set them up for the future. It was him plus Bellinger and Everybody was salivating, thinking about how the future of the Dodgers was going to look. They've always, obviously, have had a history of great player development. If you look at the number of rookie of the years that the Dodgers system has churned out both on, on both coasts, Brooklyn as well as L.A., uh, so it's been a long history. He gets a September call-up for 82 plate appearances. He hits well. It's not spectacular, but it's, it's okay. It's an okay start. And the expectation at the time seemed to be Chris Taylor was going to remain in that super utility spot, and Lux was definitely in the competition as the starting second baseman for the Dodgers. Then 2020 happens, pandemic hits, everything shifts. So Lux gets some games in at the major league level, plays in 19 games, only bats 175. And again, Chris Taylor really takes over that second baseman role more in an everyday standpoint. Um, his bats in the lineup and Lux is kind of shunted to the side. He only bats 175 and really just kind of looks ineffective at the plate. So not just the batting average, but not really hitting for power, not getting on base enough to be a threat on the base pads. Some people will speculate at least that that may have started to bleed over into the uh, defense as well as he started having some throwing errors on some routine plays. So people thought maybe he was a little bit too in his head and this is where he starts to shift into that post-hype scenario. So 2021 was a bit better. He has seven home runs, 328 OBP, and that's in 381 plate appearances. So he looks a little bit better, but again, still question marks. Now, obviously Corey Seager has left, so that creates a hole at shortstop. How is the Dodgers going to fill that? Do they use Lux? Do they go out and hunt for a free agent? Obviously, we're still in the midst of a lockout, so we don't know what that free agent frenzy is going to look like. But I think what they start to do with Lux of moving him to left field has helped to calm some of those concerns and make it a little bit easier for him on the defensive standpoint to help him focus back on his uh, offense and on his plate skills. He could still get a decent amount of time in the dirt. So him being able to keep any sort of middle infield uh, eligibility, that can really just be valuable from a strategic standpoint for you at a fantasy standpoint. I think this is a classic case of we expected, we in the fantasy community expected some linear progression from here to here to here to the majors from a prospect. And you definitely have, I imagine, heard it before. And if not, let me be the first to say with prospects, there's really no such thing as linear progression. Every case is different. Some guys can really just go from signed or drafted through rookie ball and just hit every level and boom. They get to the major leagues and they're fully formed, ready to hit or ready to pitch, depending on their position. But for a lot of guys, you look and it's a lot of back and forth. Sometimes it's a demotion. 
sometimes and sitting on the bench for a little bit before they get their break. Um, and I think with Lux, it's one of those scenarios where the Dodgers are A, so talented, obviously, and B, were such in a win-now mode, they weren't really going to be able to afford Lux that 400, 500 plate appearances in a season to just kind of fail and, and find his way through failing. They, they're just not in that sort of position. So him kind of getting moved around, getting some at-bats here and there, being in the lineup here and there, I think that was just the nature of the team that he's on. Now with Seeker gone, that frees up some playing time for somebody. And I think in their reconfiguration of their starting nine, I could definitely see Lux becoming an everyday left fielder. And that may be giving him that ability to have those everyday at-bats that he needs. So my decision on Gavin Lux, I would say, I think he still has value, uh, especially in the dynasty setup. I think he can get into double digits for home runs and in into that 15 to 17 range. Again, if he can keep any sort of uh, infield and outfield eligibility, that just makes him that much more flexible and valuable for you. And I could see him maybe popping off and having a career year uh, somewhere down the line of where he gets 20, 22 type of home runs. Uh, I wouldn't expect that from him on a consistent standpoint. And I would say if he, if you have him in an OBP league, he shouldn't drain your OBP. Most of the projections seem to have him around that 325 to 330 range, which is solid, uh, not great, but, you know, slightly above average. So I think he should be okay for you there. Uh, if you're in a batting average league, I don't think he should be too detrimental to you either. I can see him being that 240, 250 range. Maybe in that career year that I was talking about, maybe he can get high 250s and even touch 260. So if you have Lux rostered, I wouldn't I wouldn't just throw him away just yet. I would take a look to see how he fits into your roster construction because of that flexibility um, as a bench bat, especially. And again, he's only 24. So there could be one more level, one more turn in the career. Again, everything's not uh, linear uh, progression. So there could be something else that happens that helps uh, Lux raise his talent a little bit closer to where the expectations were. If you don't have Lux, should you be going for him? Maybe in a minor deal, you know, something where you're not giving up a whole lot. It may be good to test and see where the other uh, manager stands in their valuation of Lux. I wouldn't give up a lot for him. I'd much rather sit back and wait and see and have him prove that he's anywhere close to that 70 future value grade that he got from Fangrass versus going out and grabbing him uh, and hoping that that clicks in place for you. So that's Gavin Lux at second. At shortstop, uh, as a guy has yet to make his major league debut, but he's definitely somebody that I think we are very interested to see. And unfortunately, he's one of the many that's impacted by this lockout as a pseudo sort of minor league player. Uh, and that's Royce Lewis, shortstop for the Minnesota Twins. Um, Lewis was added to the 40-man roster in November. And as I think I touched on last episode, and hopefully you know by now, there's a slew of players that were added to the 40-man that now are not able to play in the minors because their contracts were purchased, but also because of the lockout. They can't do anything at the major league level, too. So they're in a bit of a baseball purgatory. Royce Lewis is one of those people. He was drafted number one overall in the 2017 draft, was ranked as high as number two overall by Fangraphs in 2019, number five in the same year by MLB Pipeline, number eight by Baseball Perspective, number nine by Baseball America. This was a super highly ranked and highly sought out uh, player here. He was another prep bat similar to Gavin Lux, and he had loud tools. The hit tool was more of a concern, but the power, the speed, the defensive ability always uh, made him very alluring as a package. He finished 2019 winning the Arizona Fall League MVP. So again, that progression, everything looked to be on the upward trajectory. But if we take a step back and look at 2019 a little bit closer, his minor league season, you can see some of those warts that were popping up um, that evaluators kind of already had concerns about from that hit tool standpoint. There was a 25.6 infield fly ball rate, so essentially pop-ups. And one thing, if you don't, again, already know, if you look at what the literature says about the batting profile and about the types of contact and types of outs, infield fly balls are pretty much right there with strikeouts as being the worst type. 
they're just about automatic outs. So when you see a rate that high, you start to wonder what is happening with the batter that he's not only is he getting under the ball, obviously, but the launch angle is so extreme as to cause 25, almost 26 percent of the batter ball events to be pop ups in the infield, which, again, that's just going to drain OBP, any sort of attempts at power and batting average because those are all automatic outs. And he also had a 50 percent pull rate. Not not crazy to see a young hitter with a high pull rate. Uh, that tends to be the case, and, and guys tend to develop to understand how to use off field. But at 50%, then you start to wonder, is he just looking for pitches that he can pull and what happens to the outer half of the plate? Uh, is he rolling over on some uh, pitches as well that he's going after trying to pull them, trying to yank them down the line? So there were some, some concerns, some question marks that popped up. Now, uh, he did get injured, and that's the biggest thing is – him tearing his ACL and that threw off the entire timeline of, of his developmental trajectory. So it does sound like from an injury standpoint, his rehab has been going successful so far. Uh, and again, when he was healthy, he showed that power and speed combo that helped put him at that number one overall pick. In 2018 at low A, he had a nine home run, 22 stolen base season. And I do want to emphasize the stolen bases this is 2018 so this is well before the changes that we've seen in the size of the bases and the number of pickoff attempts some of the things that have changed recently that have artificially increased stolen base numbers for a lot of prospects this was back when it was just standard baseball essentially so him having 22 stolen bases is significant plus the nine home runs and then even in that 2019 year warts and all he had 16 stolen bases but we do see uh, he had eight cost stealing, and that is at high A. So the efficiency of his base running maybe starts to be a question as well. So what I'm saying is this. I need to see it to believe it. Him being added to the 40-man means that he's going to stay on the Major League roster throughout the season. So I want to see what they do with him. Does he get some consistent playing time? Is he solely used as a bench bat? Do they move him around defensively? And what does that do? Um, I'm not seeking out Lewis in a trade. If he's for some reason a free ad, then absolutely I'll take the dart throw just for his sort of pedigree. But if I have Royce Lewis already, I'm definitely keeping him stashed and I'm looking to see any sort of positive information come out. So whether it be on field or even just hearing about him, you know, at, at the complex, anything of that nature, any sort of positive news, I'm looking to bolster my case and I might want to flip him and see if I can get somebody to bite on both the pedigree and really just hoping that he's going to, you know, hit the ground running. So I might use that to package him in a deal and get something back that's a little less risky and a little bit more balanced for me and my roster. But moving on, third baseman for our post-hype starting nine is going to be a Philadelphia Philly Alec Bohm, and similar to Lewis, super high draft pick, number three overall in 2018, uh, just to give the rankings again, to, in 2020, he got as high as number 28 by Baseball America, number 30 by MOB Pipeline, number 40 by Baseball Perspective, number 56 by Fangrass. So the prevailing reports were that Bohm had major hit over power as a corner infielder, and again, at the time, it, because of his height, and his overall frame wasn't sure whether he was going to stick at first or third. Um, the logic being that that frame plus his uh, hit tool being so advanced, he should be able to tap into power later. That was kind of the thought process that a lot of evaluators and scouts seem to be showing. So the idea that even though he may have low home run totals to start at the major league level, he should be able to at least cross that 20 home run barrier. And he hits pretty much at every minor league stop. And he was able to make his debut in that shortened 2020 season. And it was a great start. Hit 338, 400, 481. It was the slash line, had four home runs, had 11 doubles. Some of that power that we were looking for is showing up. And that's in 180 plate appearances. So everything seems to be rock solid. Se seemed to play a really good third base as well for the Phillies. And then 2021 is almost a complete 180 degree turn. The power doesn't progress. He hits seven 
home runs and 15 doubles, so we don't see a major step up in the power department. And that above average pitch recognition skill seemed to just completely leave him. And if you look at Bohm's savant page, we see he's in the 18th percentile for K rate, the 36th percentile for whiff rate. And we see an incredibly high percent of ground balls, 53.1%, uh, against the league average of 45.1%. So, or most of everything hit-wise, seemed to just completely disappear. So, where does he stand now? In 2022, I'm mixed on Bohm, I'll be honest. I know that Philadelphia does not have a great track record right now uh, when it comes to developing highly touted guys. The Scott Kingery experience seems to be uh, a complete bust, and Bohm is starting to trend in the same manner. Uh, so there's definitely questions there about can the Phillies actually develop these guys to be major league contributors. But if you stay on that Savant page, you do see some positive indicators. The spray chart looks great. It shows an ability to use off-field, and the max and average EVs were well above average. He was in the 82nd and the 89th percentile, respectively. So he can hit the ball hard when he is making contact. And if you look at, uh, again, what I kind of like to dub the effective hard hit percentage, but if you look at that stat on our pitcher list page, uh, it shows up as hard hit by plate appearance percentage. And it's 32.6. That's good for 38th overall in the league. So he's able to hit the ball hard when he's making contact. He's still able to use all fields. So there's something still there that allows him to possibly bring value as a third baseman. So I think uh, he can right the ship and meet most, if not all, of his potential. I agree with the projections that put him somewhere in the 15 home run range. I think the hard hit profile that he has could boost his average sum. Uh, not necessarily to those 2020 levels that he saw at his debut. That actually was combined with some unsustainably high BABIP. But I do think that he can benefit uh, from his hard hit profile to get a bit of a boost in his batting average. From an OBP standpoint, I actually think his value is lower. Um, I don't see him breaking that 330 barrier that I tend to use personally as kind of a baseline um, for average to above average. And there's nothing in that underlying numbers on Savant that show him starting to have more of an ability to take a walk that would really be able to boost his OBP. So actually, if I'm in an OBP league, I'm ranking him lower than if I'm in a batting average league. But I still think that there's something there with Alec Baum. If I'm rostering Alec Baum, I want to see in the first couple months of the season, when the, whenever that occurs, what he looks like. Does he look like that time away in this extended break has helped a little bit, or does he still look like the lost 2021 version of Bone um, before I make a decision on cutting, trading, etc.? If I'm looking to add Alec Bone to my team, similar to some of the previous players that we listed, I want to inquire about his value first. I want to see does the manager want to leverage his pedigree and what he might be able to do? Or is he looking at Alec Bohm strictly through 2021 glasses? If I can get him looking through those 2021 glasses, then you can probably get him for cheap. If he's looking still at that pedigree from when he was drafted and highly ranked, then you're probably having to pay too much for who Alec Bohm currently is right now. So next up, we're into the outfield. Our first outfielder is going to be from Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Pirate outfielder Travis Swaggerty. So definitely 80, uh, 80 grade last name. Um, we haven't seen much of Swaggerty, unfortunately, also due to injury. He was the number 10 overall pick in 2018. He got high uh, as number 82 in baseball and prospectus and number 87 by MLB Pipeline in 2019. And for Swaggerty, he really was tagged as sort of a traditional power speed center fielder. Uh, he's going to be able to have some pop and also get some bases for you. Um, 2018 kind of showed that off. He put up uh, 140 WRC plus in 36 games at low A, had four home runs, had nine stolen bases. But then we start to see gets a little rocky at, in the South Atlantic League uh, before he sort of rectifies it at Bradenton in 2019, where he put up a slash line of 265 
347-381. Again, power and speed, nine home runs, 20 doubles, and 23 stolen bases. So after the pandemic year of 2020, we see the Pirates get really aggressive with Swaggerty's assignment. They bump him from that high A that he was at all the way up to triple A. And he starts okay, not great, but it was all right. Slash line of 220, 333, 439, three home runs, three stolen bases. But then he suffers a dislocated shoulder and misses the rest of the season after undergoing shoulder surgery. So where does he stand now? He's really a borderline case for me, very similar to Royce Lewis in that I don't know if we've seen him at full strength through a full season at the upper minors. If you look at what he's done in the 2018-2019 standpoint, there is something encouraging and interesting there. But is it going to be that same player after that surgery? How am I evaluating him? Quite honestly, uh, if I'm rostering him, this one I might actually look to get out from under Swaggerty early. And that's also because I'm looking at the Pittsburgh system and looking at the fact that they have quite a few different outfielders. I'm thinking about Matt Frazier. I'm thinking about Cal Mitchell, amongst some others that are starting to develop very well and kind of bearing down on where Swaggerty was. They don't necessarily have the pedigree, but they're putting up the numbers because they're on the field healthy. So he's kind of starting to fall back almost into, um, and, and I almost thought about including this Pittsburgh Pirate instead, that Jared Oliva standpoint. Um, Jared Oliva, very similar profile of power and speed, got injured, has been on and off the field. Now he's kind of on the outside looking in when it comes to the outfield competition in the minor league for Pittsburgh to get to the major league level. Swaggerty is kind of in that same standpoint, or he's starting to follow the same path. So if I have him on my team, I might look to, again, leverage his pedigree and hope that I can get some bites. If I see Swaggerty out there, if he's a free ad, again, just like Royce Lewis, sure. I have no problem with using up a roster spot for him if he's for free. I'm not spending any fab dollars on him if you have a league where you're spending fab dollars on minor leaguers. Uh, and I'm definitely not going out of my way to trade just because, again, I haven't seen it for a full season in quite some time. I wouldn't need to see that. And seeing where he started at AAA before the injury, that 220, 333, 439 slash line, that's not me over the moon. That's not something that I need to go and have amongst all these other prospects that are out there in the world. Our next outfielder is, again, from the Seattle Mariners organization, and that is Taylor Trammell. Taylor Trammell was a first-round comp pick by Cincinnati back in 2016. So he's a little bit older than some of the other prospects that we've talked about thus far, but still was rated number 11 by Baseball Prospectus, number 12 by Fangraphs, number 16 by Pipeline, number 33 by Baseball America in 2019. So he definitely rose through the ranks. Similar to Swagger, they seemed like speed had been a major part of Taylor's profile. Uh, while he's being evaluated, more hit than power seemed to be what the consensus was. And in his first three years in the red system, it played out really great. Combined all three years, his combined triple slash ended up being 287, 372, 427. 2018, he had a standout year uh, where he hit 13 home runs. He had 41 stolen bases. And again, this is before any sort of rule changes or anything that nature was happening. And he won the Futures game MVP at the All-Star break. And that's in a class where you had Fernando Tatis Jr., you had Pete Alonso, a ton of other current major leaguers were in that draft class. And coincidentally, a guy that would end up becoming his future teammate and was the 2019 Rookie of the Year, Kyle Lewis, was in that class as well. So in 2019, he gets traded to San Diego. That's as part of the uh, Trevor Bauer deal that brought Bauer to Cincinnati. And now he starts to run into some hiccups. So his double-A season was already lackluster while he was still in the Cincy organization. Now going to San Diego with their affiliate in Amarillo, didn't get much better. He put up career lows in batting average, OBP, and slugging in the 32 games that he played in Amarillo. And he only hit four more home runs, so he had a season total of 10. Uh, and stolen bases seemed to dry up almost completely as well. He gets traded again, which is never great for a prospect's development or for his value in the fantasy community. He gets traded to another team. That's where he ends up in Seattle. And he joins the Major League Club to start the season. 
the struggles are still there. He specifically is seeing a lot of strikeouts. The pitch recognition, the discipline that seemed like he had in spades as a teenager now is not showing up at all. He's posting a K rate of 41% in 51 games, and he had a swinging strike rate of 20%. So if you think about that, 20% uh, for a swinging strike rate. If he was a pitcher, we'd like to see it. As a hitter, that's awful. So by June, he's getting bumped back, demoted to AAA by Seattle, but he does handle the demotion well. So we see him in AAA hitting 263, 362, 456. That's encouraging because for a young guy like this, getting bounced around team to team to team, having tasted some early success, getting demoted, that can, for some guys, be demotivational. And you can see it in the way they play. For Tramiel, didn't seem to affect his game in that negative sense. Uh, he also had 12 home runs. He had eight stolen bases. So the question now becomes, is he more of a quad A guy? While the AAA stats are encouraging, for me, I think it's just a little too little too late. I think, especially, again, looking at his team, um, the Mariners have a bevy of outfield options. Hanniger's kind of their stalwart in right field. They're waiting on Julio Rodriguez. Kalinick, obviously, is their center fielder. They still have to figure out what they're going to do about Kyle Lewis. Um, and he's coming off of injury and, again, haven't had not necessarily the best rookie of the year season, but he did win rookie of the year for them. And that could leave Jamel on the outside looking in, just like we talked about with Evan White. Just the increase of talent that Seattle has had in the last few years means that some of these guys that they were banking on early may get left by the wayside. So my decision, I'm leaving him on the wire. I'm leaving Jamel alone. I know he is younger than some of our post-hype guys, but right now he's looking, again, either as a quad A guy or a fifth outfielder. The best case scenario for him is technically for him to get traded to a fourth team as a reclamation project. And I can't even think of what that team would be because I don't know how many rebuilding teams are looking to find a talented but flawed left fielder that they don't have in their own system. So I wanted to say a team like Baltimore or Pittsburgh, who are we building? But as we just covered with Pittsburgh, they have enough outfielders of their own. Baltimore, the same way, they have enough outfielders or guys that can play the corner spots well enough on their own. They don't need to bring in a Taylor Trammell. So I don't really know where Taylor Trammell gets any at-bats to bring any sort of value. So I'm leaving Trammell alone. If I'm rostering him, quite honestly, I'm cutting him loose. Uh, there's definitely somebody, veteran or prospect, that you can find on the waiver wire unless you're in an incredibly deep, deep league. And I don't just mean team-wise, but roster spots-wise. If you're in a 12 to 16 teamer, though, I can promise you that there should be probably five prospects and, and quite honestly, four or five uh, veterans that you can find as outfielders that can at least be more valuable to you than Taylor Trammell is right now. All right. And our last outfielder for our starting lineup is Jesus Sanchez from the Miami Marlins. So Sanchez was kind of a middle-of-the-pack ranking. Uh, he was ranked number 49 overall in 2018 by Baseball America, number 32 by MLB Pipeline, and number 39 by Baseball Perspectives in 2019. And he was a very young signee from Dominican Republic by Tampa Bay to start. And as a teenager, he put up some great WRC Plus numbers from 2015 to 2017. The numbers were 143, 153, 170, and 130 was the last WRC Plus at low A Bowling Green. And that's before he gets traded from Tampa to Miami in the 2019 season. He shows tremendous raw power and uh, above average game power. That was his calling card throughout. Obviously, with a guy like that and a guy of his build, uh, very tall, very muscular, questions always becomes, is he going to get too aggressive at the plate? And is that going to make his contact ability suffer? And it looked to be like that was the case when he made his major league debut in the 2020 season. It was short, but it was not great. Only lasted 10 games. The most notable thing about it was that over-aggressiveness, his swing rate was over 50%. So that's showing that aggressiveness really rearing its ugly head but you turn the page to last year where he starts out at triple a jacksonville and he completely destroys um i remember actually just seeing there was a run where it seemed like almost every game or every other game he had hit a home run he put up a triple slash of 348 407 653 
had 10 home runs, and that was in 155 plate appearances before he gets brought back up to the major league level with Miami. Second run at the majors was way more successful, had 14 home runs, had a 116 OPS plus, and that was in 64 games. When we talk about it's not linear progression, it takes guys a minute, this is the type of guy that we're thinking of. I'm in on Jesus Sanchez. That's where I stand. The underlying numbers are encouraging. If you look at his page on picture list, that batted ball data is is really, really good. Uh, the effective hard hit percentage is just under league average, but his sweet spot percentage, his ideal contact rate are above average. And the biggest thing on Savant, to me, if you look on his Savant page, that max EV, 113.9, was how hard he hit ball last year. That puts him in the top 9% of the league. So he can hit. He can hit the ball hard. And additionally, the other thing that I like seeing on his Savant page was run values per pitch type showed positive values to four-seamers, change-ups, and sliders. So if you think about the three main pitches that most major league arsenals are going to contain, everybody's in on the four-seamers these days. Change-ups, obviously, are the main off-speed. And then everybody's in on the sliders. He's showing positive values against all those pitches. I'm really interested in Jesus Sanchez. If I can go out and get him, I'm trying to. You might find, and I found this in one of my leagues, the price is a bit steep. I'm not breaking the bank on Sanchez yet, but I'm definitely inquiring. I'm seeing how he's being evaluated. And if I can get him without giving up too much, I definitely think there's another level to his game that he hopefully we'll be able to show in 2022 and I want to be on that gravy train especially from a dynasty standpoint as he hits that other level and quite possibly becomes uh one of the best outfielders that we have in in the game especially from a power standpoint I think if you're in a batting average league you probably can rank him a little bit lower but I think OBP wise he could surprise with being at least average I talked about that 330 sort of market that I use He might be a little bit closer to the 320, 325, but I think it'll be good enough, especially with the power numbers. He's a guy that could hit 30 home runs. I could see that for Jesus Sanchez. I hate to use the word easily, but I think he has that potential and he's starting to tap into that potential based on what he's shown thus far. So to finish up our starting nine, we have to have somebody on the bump. And that person, I went through a couple of names Saw there were some write-ups on some guys that I was considering, so I wanted to go somebody different. And I settled on Chris Paddock from San Diego Padres. Uh, Paddock was drafted in 2015 by Miami out of Cedar Park High School in Texas. His highest rankings, number 34 by Pipeline, number 35 by Fangraphs, 37 by Baseball Perspectives, number 66 by Baseball America. So again, in that top 100 at least um, as a prospect. He gets traded to the Padres in 2016. Uh, he threw 28.1 innings pitch that looked really good. And then he tore his UCL and had to have Tommy John surgery. So that obviously sets him back in his developmental process. And when he returns in 2018, unfortunately, we see a reduction in both his fastball velocity, but also that K rate as well. Now the questions are, is he going to have the velo enough to be a major league starter the way we kind of envision. The command and control that he uh, was known for, that stays in place. So he's at double A in 2018. He turns in a 2.9% walk rate. So he's, if you look at his page, he's always had incredibly sterling command control numbers when it comes to pitching. His major league debut occurs in 2019, and he looks solid. Not great, but not bad, especially considering young guy coming back from Tommy John. You just want to have something that is solid, and that's the way he looked. He had a 21.5K minus walk rate. He had a 3.95 FIP, and that was 140 innings. So you like to see that he was able to put some innings on the uh, arm after having that surgery and was able to have mostly positive results. But unfortunately, in 2020, all those rates start to fall, and they stay suppressed as of last season. That strikeout uh, ability is under question, his uh, ability to suppress runs under question as well. So what is the value for Chris Paddock? If you look on his Savant page, there's a lot of blue and deep blue. 
right? He's he's in the lower portions for a lot of different categories across the league. If you look at his splits, he does seem to have performed better on the road than at home, but I don't know how actionable that really is. I've gone back and forth at trying to get Paddock in trades last year and then just being off of him. Now really being able to take a step back and look at him holistically, I'm out on Paddock uh, unless I need a streaming option or if I'm in a really deep league and I need a depth arm because, he, again, he does have command and control so he can suppress walks so he can help you out in the whip standpoint to an extent. But other than that, I don't really see much reason to invest. I don't see another level. I don't see anything from his fastball um, or his, his other pitches that really show me, hey, if he uses this more, then we can see uh, some better results. Not saying that it can't happen. I'm just not seeing it in the data. Uh, maybe if you uh, already have Paddock rostered, he might be somebody that you can put in the throw in, kind of sneak him in to get him off your team. Just like, hey, we already have the main pieces in place. I'll throw in Paddock as well and maybe get somebody to bite. But otherwise, you're kind of just hoping for some sort of lightning to hit. And I don't see where that lightning is coming from. So I'm out on Chris Paddock as well. That's the starting nine. As always, we'll have the names in the show notes. Uh, I mentioned uh, Steve's article. We'll have that in the show notes as well for you to read. Uh, I hope, I'm really curious to hear some feedback on this one. Leave your reviews. You can always find me, like we always say on Twitter, at Inside Fastball, capital I, capital F, on Twitter. So I'm really interested to hear where you guys stand on these names. If there's some names that you would put on your own sort of starting nine post-type guys that you're looking for. Um, or post-type guys that you're out on as well. I know I didn't want to use Victor Robles because I know that's a dead horse that's been beaten. But um, there's plenty of names that are out there of uh, sort of mixed reviews in the fantasy community, and I'm eager to hear. So don't be shy. Please give us your feedback. Leave reviews of the episode as well. Um, I always want to remind you, you can find this podcast and other Picture List pods on the Picture List Network podcast page. There's On the Corner. There's Wins Above Fantasy with Van Burnett and the aforementioned Steve Giswelli. There's Shagging Flies, hosted by Ben Palmer and Zach Hayes. They're all available in the podcast section of Picture List for you to find, listen, and subscribe. Again, you can find me on Twitter at Inside Fastball, capital I, capital F. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.